Welcome to the podcast of Trinity Presbyterian Church in Owasso, Oklahoma. Our passion is to show that grace changes everything in Jesus Christ by equipping you to rest in worship, grow in community, and rediscover your calling. To join our body in financial support of this ministry, visit our website at trinityowasso.com. If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels but have not love... I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. If I give away all I have, and if I deliver up my body to be burned, but have not love, I gain nothing. Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never ends. As for prophecies, they will pass away. As for tongues, they will cease. As for knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part, and we prophesy in part. But when the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. When I was a child, I spoke like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I gave up childish ways. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. So now faith hope and love abide these three but the greatest of these is love the grass withers and the flowers fade but God's word stands forever this is the word of the Lord thanks be to God you may be seated please the first time Nathan Fox walked into a Romanian orphanage the thing that struck him most was the silence. The most remarkable thing about the infant room was how quiet it was, he writes. Probably because infants had learned that their cries were not responded to, says Fox, who directs the Child Development Laboratory at the University of Maryland. In this Romanian orphanage, babies lay in their cribs all day except when they're fed, they're diapered, or they're bathed on a set schedule. They weren't rocked or sung to. And many babies would stare at their own hands, trying to derive whatever stimulation they could from the world around them. Basically, these kids were left on their own. If we were to fly to Bucharest right now, we were to take a charter plane and bring all of us there, what would you do with those babies? Hmm? High ideals like love and justice and hope and faith are robbed of their glory when they are technically defined in an environment desperate for their display. So take love for instance. When you hear that story about Nathan Fox in that Romanian orphanage, what do you want to do? We would not, if we took that charter plane to Bucharest, go to that orphanage and we would not say to those babies, now love 
is an intense feeling of deep affection. <laughs> what would you do? You would sweep those babies up in your arms and you would weep over them and you would hold them near. You would let them smell you. You would let them be near you and you would hold them. Even talking about the fact that there are children who are neglected like that brings tears to some of your eyes. You display love. You don't define it. Or let's take justice, for example. Have any of you ever experienced injustice? I was talking this morning just to, to, uh, to somebody who helps us set up for Sunday morning, and they were telling us about an injustice that they had gone through. And somebody who has suffered injustice doesn't want someone to say, even behind the pulpit, justice is the orchestration of God's order. And no, what they want is to fight the injustice. High ideals that are technically defined are robbed of their glory when they are defined instead of displayed. Or take faith, for instance. You want to define what faith is? We love to read what faith is. We love to quote it. What is faith? We love to define it. But what about the people that Jesus talked about in Matthew chapter 7? They said, Lord, Lord, didn't we do great things in your name? Didn't we prophesy in your name and heal people? And what does Jesus say to them? Mm, yes, you did. He doesn't deny it. But depart from me, you wickers of iniquity. Why? Because you, I never knew you. They didn't have faith. Or take hope. Some of you are in grief counseling. And I'm so thankful that you are. Honestly, more of us probably should be. But if your counselor were to tell you now, this is the definition of hope, you would say, I want my money back for that session. You want them to give you a sense of hope. The point of grief counseling is to move people from technical definitions to the real experience of being infused with a sense of hope. It is possible, oh reformed brothers and sisters and oh Americans, it is possible for you to be too smart for your own good. You can know all about systematic theology. You can come to AIM Discipleship and learn about it. You can, you can read until your eyesight is blurry. But if you do not show it, you've missed the high ideal. Paul's point in 1 Corinthians 13 is not for you to have a technical definition of love because he never defines it as we've been saying over these weeks. He's not giving us a technical definition. He's giving us a display of it because that is what the Corinthian church so desperately needed to experience. There's an old 80s movie. I can't remember, I can't remember what it is. I just remember it and uh, some of you may know it. But there's an old 80s movie one time that I saw where there are these two women. They're sitting having, having a, a drink together and they're talking about the guys they're dating. And, and, and they're just going through the list of duds. Like there's a lot of duds. <laughs> and and this, this one, this friend is just like intoxicated with love. She's found her guy. And she's, she's acting weird and her friend is concerned about her. Like, like you're acting weird because you're like taking his laundry for him. You're like making meals for him. Like I'm worried about you. He sounds possessive. And there's a line in the movie where they begin, to, or they begin to argue and they just begin to get defensive about one another. And finally this friend with a moment of clarity breaks through, this one who had found this man and fallen in love. And she goes, the point is I did not know what love felt like until I was loved like that. He knows me. And I know him. And that's the gospel. 
You can talk all about what love is. But you know love when you meet him. And Paul's point in this passage is simply this. For love to be the action you want, it has to first be the person you need, namely Christ. For love to be the action you want, it has to first be the person you admit that you need, namely Jesus. C.S. Lewis says it like this in The Weight of Glory. For the idols of our loves are not the thing itself. They are only the scent of a flower we have not found, the echo of a tune we have not heard, the news from a country that we have never yet visited. Why? Because love is. That's how Paul chooses to define it. Love is. Love is a person. Love is. For love to do, it first must be. And it is. It's a person. And if you view love as something that you do, you turn this passage into a list of commands and it wears you out. You begin to think, well, I need to be more patient. I need to be more kind. And that is true. My wife is saying under her breath, that is true, buddy. You need to be more patient. And that is true. But for love to be the action you want, it first must be the person that you need. Do you see it? What happens in this passage is that Paul is talking about a change of nature, a change of heart. And rather than focusing on obeying a list of commands, Paul is beckoning us to become the person of Christ. And you become the person of Christ to the degree that you recognize your need for him. Are you with me? So, for example, we see this a lot in older men. Older men. Men who have, when they were younger, man, they just were crushing it at work. They were working long hours. They were building their companies. They were building their community. And they were, they were doing great work. They were really, really, they had full plates. They were, they were maybe they, they verged on workaholism. But they were really, really courageous and really went after and did it. But what happens when those, old, those young men become grandfathers? You've seen it. The father didn't have time to sit on the floor for hours and play Legos. But the grandfather and the kids are like, where were you when I was that age? And these grandfathers develop this sense of tenderness of heart about them. What's going on? They are, they are recognizing that love is in relationship. And they are recognizing that though they spent so much time, and so much of it was well spent to give them the ability to now spend time with their grandkids perhaps. But you see this, you see this grandfather especially, and he is just dazzling with a new degree of love. He's gloating over, like, I don't know a lot of fathers who would say, hey, have you seen a picture of my infant son? The mothers do it, but the dads don't. But the grandfathers, poof, they've got a whole card catalog of the pictures of their kids. Look at these babies. I love them. It's my life. It revolves around them. Why? Because the weight of eternity weighs on his heart and begins to squeeze the love out of him in a whole new way because he knows his time is short. It's a change of nature. He sees it. Why? Because he's been changed, not just by the squeeze of time, but if he's a Christian, he's had his, priori his priorities made right side up. So I just want to explore in this passage two things that he says love is not. And it's found in verse uh, 5. Love is not irritable. 
and it's not resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. I just want us to talk about those two things. Two common experiences, irritability and resentment, and then we'll close. And I want us to diagnose them, do a little pathology on our hearts, and then we'll prepare to come to the table. Irritability. Are you irritable? Why are you so irritable? The word in Greek can be translated greatly distressed. And there are good, there are good reasons to be greatly distressed. In Acts chapter 17, uh, verse 16, Paul was distressed. He was waiting for them in Athens and he was greatly distressed. Same word. He was irritated to see that the city was full of idols. God was greatly distressed in Deuteronomy. I lift my hand to the heavens and declare as surely as I live forever when I sharpen my flaming sword. That metaphor is what the Greek translators of the Old Testament used the same word for it. God is irritable. My hand grasps my flaming sword, my irritable sword in judgment, and I will take vengeance on my adversaries and repay those who hate me. God was irritated at the sin of the nations around them and within his own people. There are good reasons to be irritated and there are bad reasons to be irritated. You feel irritable often because you feel under threat. And you feel under threat because you have built up a fortress of power and an image that you curate online. You promote your ego and you're desperate to try to maintain it. Now this isn't all of you, but it is some of you. And don't let the conviction of the Holy Spirit pass you by. Use it. Let's think about the why is this true? Power, performance, preference, personality. We fear other people that threaten us because they can expose us, that they, they, they may humiliate us. We fear people because they can reject or ridicule or despise us. We fear people because they can hunt or attack or threaten us. And you meet someone who gets on your nerves and you immediately think, not how can I love this person despite how irritated I get by them, but you immediately become more concerned because you try to defend your own image or your own fortress rather than being challenged to grow in the presence of such discomfort. And how do I know this is true? Because I do this all the time. Sadly. And I may be the only one in the room, so forgive me if I'm just kind of preaching to myself for the next five minutes. But the mark of a proud heart is a self-justifying heart. That's what we talked about last week. Love does not seek its own. And the mark of a proud heart, it means that you're irritable all the time. You're just on the edge, on the knife's edge of irritability. And everybody else can see it except you because you feel like God owes you. And some of you are continually irritable because you feel like the universe has gone against you, that God has some way gone against you. You've tried so hard. You've suffered so much. You can be a success and be irritable. You can be a failure and be irritable. Why? Because it's self-justification at work. And the only unpardonable sin in Scripture is self-justification. Saying to God, God, thank you, but I don't need you. I can do it myself. Irritated that your plans haven't gone. Irritated that you are the age you are looking back at your life and it not lining up the way that you expected it to 35 years ago. Hmm. Has God failed you? Maybe he's put you right where he has because he loves you. Have you ever thought about that? 
He has orchestrated all the providential moments in your life in such a way to put you right here, right now, hearing my voice to remind you that I love you, Jesus says to you. I know, he says to you. So much of your own unhappiness comes from the fact that you are self-justifying. It comes from being demanding. It comes from your, dare I say it, your codependency on maintaining the fortress of idolatry and ego that you have so worked so hard to curate. Say what? Your, codependence, your codependency? Yes. You can be codependent on a reputation that you've tried to create. Do you think and feel overly responsible for other people? Do you feel compelled to help people solve their problems? Are you tired of feeling like you always give to others but no one gives to you? Do you find yourself blaming others for your situation? Do you feel unappreciated? Do you feel rejection? Do you feel ashamed of who you are? Do you worry about whether people like you or not? Do you focus on other people's problems rather than on your own? Do you threaten or bribe or beg with your words or your actions? Do you try to say what you think will please or provoke to get you what you need? Do you manipulate? Do you let others keep hurting and never say anything? Do you, do you, do you feel like a martyr? A humble heart says that I am a totally loved moral failure. I can relax. And a proud heart says I have worked my fingers to the bone and where's the thanks? Don't people see what I've done? They owe me. Self-justification strikes at the heart of the gospel. And so when Paul says love is not irritable, Paul is saying, would you lay down, would you lay down the, the idols that you've created for yourself? How well you use your gifts if you're a Corinthian in the first century. Or how successful you are. Or how much time some of you have spent online putting just the right picture on your social media feeds. I mean, you know this. And the codependency on the fortress that you have created for yourself is robbing you of loving other people. And the Holy Spirit wants you to take that fortress and he wants you to trust him with it and to say, I've got you. I love you. I'm with you in it. Because if you don't, it will lead to the even more nasty offshoot of irritability called resentment. The Greek phrase for resentment uh, literally says ho logizetai to kakon. Logizetai is related to the word for credit or account, logizomai in Greek. When Abraham believed God, it was logizomai to him. It was credited to him as righteousness, Romans chapter 4 says. This is why it was logizomai. It was credited to him as righteousness. He was delivered over to death. Jesus was delivered over to death for our sins and was raised to life for our justification. To, to resent somebody 
is crediting another person with evil. With when you live in an irritability hotbox long enough, you begin to place evil blame on other people. And it fuels your irritability. The guy who dro drives the F-250 looks down his nose at the guy who drives the Prius or the Tesla. The, the student who is not popular resents the popular crowd and so on and so forth. Resentment can refer to past experiences. Resentment can be intoxicated with an experience of past harm and constantly picking at those wounds again and again and again to make you feel better. Resentment can exist in the present. It doesn't allow other people to exist unless they have the same type of pain that you do. Resentment is a complex and it's a multi-layered emotion that people experience. It's described as being the combination of disappointment, disgust, anger, and fear. And resentment, the Puritans used to say, is Satan's most natural emotion. Living in resentment of God. In light of the fall, we are all hardwired to keep a list and a track record of others' failures. And Paul says, don't do that. We believe we ascend the ladder upon the mistakes of other people. And think about this, men especially. For those of you who lead organizations or companies or crews or manage departments and women, think about the way that you help people grow for the mutual edification of each other. Think about the amazing possibility you have at work where you can build others up even at your own expense. Think about the way the end of the year comes and you choose to give a potential raise that you might deserve to others. You cover for others. You serve others. Isn't that what love looks like in your family? Tenderness, as Cornel West likes to say, tenderness is what love feels like in private, but justice is what love, love looks like in public. And you have the opportunity to love your employees and encourage them. You spend so much time at work during the week. Bring the gospel to bear at work. Love your colleagues and others. And those you manage, sacrifice for them. Care for them. That is the love of the gospel of Jesus. For love to be the action you want, it first has to to be the person you need. And when techniques fail us as parents, when we've checked all the boxes and we still feel like we are losing control, what do you fall back on? You learn to improvise, Christian, to love your kids and love your spouse and to care for them and to say, let's let love fill this home. It may look like something that makes you very uncomfortable. It may look like a child who has run from the faith expressing his doubts in that living room. Don't let that irritate you. Love them. Don't resent God. Love them. Move toward them. Create an unhurried space, even in your home, for love to manifest and for it to swell. Do you know one of the greatest problems in the evangelical church today? Your house. I'll take full responsibility also for all of the ills in, in my own home and even the ills in the church as pastors who get distracted from the gospel by other things. 
But one of the greatest dangers today are not weapons of mass destruction out there. They are the weapons of mass distraction in your house. Because you haven't learned to love each other. Where do people learn what love is? They learn it at home. They learn it from you. And so this is not, this is not, I'm not beating up on you. I'm just saying this is where love comes to roost. How is it practiced? How is it lived out? It's lived out in your house. And it's lived out in community groups. And it's lived out in the church. And we ought to be the place that's the quickest to repent because we are aware of the love that we lack. What would Jesus say if he were to write Trinity a letter to us? Love doesn't work so much. Love doesn't worry so much about where the stock market is right now. Love takes a risk. And especially for men, love means you make friendships with others so that you're not so emotionally dependent upon your spouse. <laughs> She's not going to say it, but you're killing her because you don't have any other friendships. That's what love is. What would he say to you? The good news is that Jesus was not irritated. Jesus did not resent us. But Jesus logizomide for us. He took on the resentment of sin upon himself. Jesus took on the not just minor irritation, but infinite irritation of being abandoned by his Father. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Jesus, Jesus suffered ultimate resentment so that you would no longer walk in your resentment because you would see in Jesus that you are logizomide. You are credited with a righteousness that's not your own. To the ashamed and the humiliated in the room, Jesus covers you with his love. To the rejected, he accepts and he glorifies you by his love. This is our hope. This is our high ideal displayed for us in the cross. To, to the threatened, Jesus protects you with his perfect righteous record. When you see him, when you see him, then you can rejoice in the truth. It doesn't rejoice in wrongdoing. It rejoices in the truth because he is truth. Pilate asked the wrong question when he asked Jesus, Quid est veritas? What is truth? It was the wrong question. He should have looked the living word of God in the eyes and he should have said, who is truth? Jesus may have answered that question. And we look at the written word of God and we look at it and we go, what is truth? And you're asking the wrong question. You should be asking the Bible, who is truth? Because it is Jesus who changes your nature. And when he changes your nature, then you can experience a love like that. For love to be the action you want, it first has to be the person you need. Because love is a person. And to become fully human, you see him. And it becomes beautiful to you. And with all of your sin and shame, and fear and guilt, you come and you bring all of that baggage to the cross of Jesus. And you say, Lord, I want to love like that. And he goes, good, because I know you by name and I'm calling you. I know it. I know about that too. And he says, bring it to me. Let me love you like that. 
Stop self-justifying. That's why you're so irritable. That's why you're so resentful. And come to me, all who are heavy laden, and be filled with my love. And you experience that faith, that experience of love, by repentance and faith. And when you look to him in faith, you will know what it means to be loved like that. Because for love to be the action you need, it must first be action that you want. It must first be what? It must first be the person that you need. So as we come to the Lord's table this morning, come to the person that you need, the Lord Jesus, and let him again love you like that. And be full of the Holy Spirit and to love others and lay down your self-justifications to put others before yourself. Love is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, keeps no track record of wrongs, but rejoices in the truth because Jesus is the truth. Let's pray. Father, we pray that you would strengthen our weary hearts to see you a beauty so ancient and yet so new. Late have we loved you. You've called, you've shouted, you've broken through our deafness. You have flared and blazed and banished our blindness. You have lavished us with your fragrance. Would you help us to grasp and know and pant for you? Lord, help us to taste and to know and to hunger and thirst for righteousness that is found because of our union with you. And transform us so that we can then be your hands and feet, loving our neighbors in the world because we have known a love like that. Thank you for listening to our podcast. If you would like more information or would like to help support the local body of Trinity, please visit our website at trinityowasso.com.